Chapter six of the Autobiography of a Thief. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Autobiography of a Thief by Hutchins Hapgood. Chapter six. What the Burglar Faces. For a long time I took Sheenie Annie's advice and did not do any night work. It's too dangerous. The comeback is too sure. You have to depend too much on the nerve of your pals. The bits are too long, and it's very difficult to square it. But as time went on, I grew bolder. I wanted to do something new, and get more dough. My new departure was not, however, entirely due to ambition, and the boldness acquired by habitual success. After a gun has grafted for a long time, his nervous system becomes affected, for it's certainly an exciting life. He is then very apt to need a stimulant. He's usually addicted to either opium or chloral, morphine or whiskey. Even at this early period I began to take a little opium, which afterward was one of the main causes of my constant residence in stir, and was really the wreck of my life, for when a grafter is doped, he's inclined to be very reckless. Perhaps if I had never hit the hop, I would not have engaged in dangerous occupation of a burglar. I will say one thing for opium, however. That drug never makes a man careless of his personal appearance. He'll go to prison frequently, but he will always have a good front, and will remain a self-respecting thief. The whiskey dip, on the other hand, is apt to dress carelessly, lose his ambition, and eventually to go down and out as a common bum. I began night work when I was about twenty years old, and at first I did not go in for it very heavily. Big Jack, Jerry, Ed, and I made several good touches in Mount Vernon and in hotels at summer resorts, and got sums ranging from two hundred to twenty-seven hundred dollars. We worked together for nearly a year, with much success and only an occasional fall, and these we succeeded in squaring. Once we had a shooting match which made me a little leery. I was getting out the window with my swag when a shot just grazed my eye. I nearly decided to quit then, but I suppose because it was about that time I was beginning to take opium I continued with more boldness than ever. One night Ed, a close pal of mine, was operating with me out in Jersey. We were working in the rear of a house and Ed was just shinning up the back porch to climb in the second story window when a shutter above was thrown open and without warning a pistol shot rang out. Down came Ed, falling like a log at my feet. Are you hurt? said I. Done, said he, and I saw it was so. Now, a man may be nervy enough, but self-preservation is the first rule of life. I turned and ran at the top of my speed across two backyards, then through a field, then over a fence into what seemed a plowed field beyond. The ground was rough and covered with hummocks, and as I stumbled along I suddenly tripped and fell ten feet down into an open grave. The place was a cemetery, though I had not recognized it in the darkness. For hours I lay there trembling, but nobody came and I was safe. It was not long after that, however, that something did happen to shake my nerve, which was pretty good. It came about in the following way. A jeweler, who was a well-known fence, put us on to a place where we could get thousands. He was one of the most successful feelers out in the business. The man who was my pal on this occasion, Dal, looked the place over with me, and though we thought it a bit risky, the size of the graft attracted us. We had to climb up on the front porch with an electric light streaming right down on us. I had reached the porch when I got the well-known signal of danger. I hurriedly descended and asked Dal what was the matter. Jim, he said, there's somebody off there a block away. We investigated, and you can imagine how I felt when we found nothing but an old goat. It was a case of Dal's nerves, but the best of us get nervous at times. 
I went to the porch again and opened the window with a putty knife made of the rib of a woman's corset, when I got the cluck again and hastily descended, but again found it was Dal's imagination. Then I grew hot and said, you have knocked all the nerve out of me for sure. Jim, he replied, I ain't feeling good. Was it a premonition? He wanted to quit the job, but I wouldn't let him. I opened up on him. What? I said. You're willing to steal one piece of jewelry and take a chance of going to stir, but when we get a good thing that would land us in Easy Street the rest of our lives, you weaken? Dal was quiet, and his face unusually pale. He was a good fella, but his nerve was gone. I braced him up, however, and told him we'd get the A clap the third time, sure. Then, climbing the porch the third time, I removed my shoes, raised the window again, and had just struck a light when a revolver was pressed on my head. I knocked the man's hand up, quick, and jumped. As I did so, I heard a cry and then the beating of a policeman's stick on the sidewalk. I ran with two men after me and came to the gateway of a yard where I saw a big bloodhound chained to his kennel. He growled savagely, but it was neck or nothing, so I patted his head just as though I were not shaken with fear, slipped down on my hands and knees and crept into his doghouse. Why didn't he bite me? Was it sympathy? When my pursuers came up, the owner of the house, who had been aroused by the cries, said, He's not here. This dog would eat him up. When the police saw the animal, they were convinced of it, too. A little while later, I left my friend's kennel. It was four o'clock in the morning, and I had no shoes and only one dollar and sixty cents in my pocket. I sneaked through the back window of the first house I saw, stole a pair of shoes and eighty dollars from a room where a man and his wife were sleeping. Then I took a car. Knowing that I was still being looked for, I wanted to get rid of my hat as a partial disguise. On the seat with me was a working man asleep. I took his old soft hat, leaving my new derby by his side, and also took his dinner pail. Then when I left the car, I threw away my collar and necktie and reached New York disguised as a working man. The next day the papers told how poor old Dal had been arrested. Everything that had happened for weeks was put on him. A week later, Dal was found dead in his cell, and I believe he did the Dutch act suicide. For I remember one day, months before that fatal night, Dal and I were sitting in a politician's saloon when he said to me, Jim, do you believe in heaven? No, said I. Do you believe in hell? he asked. No, said I. I got a mind to find out, he said quickly, and pointed a big revolver at his teeth. One of the guns in the saloon said, let him try it but I knocked the pistol away, for something in his manner made me think seriously he would shoot. You poor brute, I said to him. I'll put your ashes in an urn some day and write dear old Saturday night for an epitaph for you, but it isn't time yet. It did not take many experiences like the above to make me very leery at night work, and I went more slowly for some time. I continued to dip, however, more boldly than ever, and to do a good deal of day work, in which comparatively humble graft the servant girls, as I have already said, used to help us out considerably. This class of women never interested me as much as the sporting characters, but we used to make good use of them, and sometimes they amused us. I remember an entertaining episode which took place while Harry, a pal of mine at the time, and I were going with a couple of these hard-working malls. Harry was rather inclined to be a sure-thing grafter, of which class of thieves I shall say more in another chapter. And after my recent dangerous adventures, I tolerated that class more than was customary with me. Indeed, if Harry had been the real thing, I would have cut him dead. As it was, he came near enough to the genuine article to make me despise him in my ordinary mood. But, as I say, I was uncommonly leery just at that time. 
He and I were walking in Stuyvesant Square when we met a couple of these domestic slaves. With a hello, we rang in on them, walked them down 2nd Avenue, and had a few drinks all round. My girl told me whom she was working with. Thinking there might be something doing, I felt her out further, with a view to finding where in the house the stuff lay. Knowing the Celtic character thoroughly, I easily got the desired information. We took the girls into Bonnell's Museum at 8th Street and Broadway, and saw a howling border melodrama, in which wild Indians were as thick as mall buzzers in 1884. Ann, who was my girl, said she should tell her mistress about the beautiful play, and asked for a program. They were all out, and so I gave her an old one of another play which I had in my pocket. We had a good time and made a date with them for another meeting, in two weeks from that night. But before the appointed hour we had beat Marianne's mistress out of two hundred dollars worth of silverware, easily obtained, thanks to the information I had received from Marianne. When we met the girls again, I found Marianne in a great state of indignation. I was afraid she was next to our being the burglars, and came near falling through the floor. But her rage, it seemed, was about the play. She had told her mistress about the wild Indian melodrama she had seen, and then had shown her the program of The Banker's Daughter. But there's no such thing as an Indian in the banker's daughter, her mistress had said. I fear you are deceiving me, Marianne, and that you have been to some low place on the Bowery. The other servants in the house got next and kidded Marianne almost to death about Indians in the banker's daughter. After I had quieted her somewhat, she told me about the burglary that had taken place at her house, and Harry and I were much interested. She was sure the touch had been made by two, quote, naggers who lived in the vicinity. It was shortly after this incident that I beat Blackwell's Island out of three months. A certain healer put me onto a disorderly house, where we could get some stones. I had everything fixed. The healer had arranged it with a copper on the beat, and it seemed like a sure thing, although the madam, I understood, was a good shot and had plenty of nerve. My accomplice, the healer, was a sure thing grafter, who had selected me because I had the requisite nerve and was no squealer. At two o'clock in the morning, a trusted pal and I ascended from the back porch to the madam's bedroom. I had just struck a match when I heard a female voice say, What are you doing there? And a bottle, fired at my head, banged up against the wall with a crash. I did not like to alarm women, and so I made my gets out the window, over the fence, and into another street, where I was picked up by a copper on general principles. The madam told him that the thief was over six feet tall and had a fierce black mustache, as I am only five feet seven inches and was smoothly shaven, it did not seem like an identification, although when she saw me she changed a note and swore I was the man. The copper, who knew I was a grafter, though he did not think I did that kind of work, nevertheless took me to the station house, where I convinced two wardmen that I had been arrested unjustly. When I was led before the magistrate in the morning, the copper said the lady's description did not tally with the short, red-haired and freckled thief before his honor. The policemen all agreed, however, that I was a notorious grafter, and the magistrate, who was not much of a lawyer, sent me to the island for three months on general principles. I was terribly sore, for I knew I had been illegally treated. I felt as much a martyr as if I had not been guilty in the least, and I determined to escape at all hazards, although my friends told me I would be released any day, for certainly the evidence against me had been insufficient. After I'd been on the islands ten days, I went to a friend who had been confined there several months and said, Eddie, I have been unjustly convicted for a crime I committed. Such was my way of putting it. And I am determined to make my elegant escape. Come what will. Do you know the weak spots of this dump? 
He put me next, and I saw there was a chance, a slim one, if a man could swim and didn't mind drowning. I found another pal, Jack Donovan, who, like me, could swim like a fish. He was desperate, too, and willing to take any chance to see New York. Five or six of us slept together in one large cell, and on the night selected for our attempt, Jack and I slipped into a compartment where about twenty short-term prisoners were kept. Our departure from the other cell, from which it was very difficult to escape after once being locked in for the night, was not noticed by the night guard and his trusty because our pals in the cell answered to our names when they were called. It was comparatively easy to escape from the large room where the short-term men were confined. Into this room, too, Jack and I had taken tools from the quarry during the daytime. It was twelve o'clock on a November night when we made our escape. We took ropes from the canvas cot, tied them together, and lowered ourselves to the ground on the outside, where we found bad weather, rain, and hail. We were unable to obtain a boat, but secured a telegraph pole, rolled it into the water, and set off with it for New York. The terrific tide at Hellgate soon carried us well into the middle of Long Island Sound, and when we had been in the water half an hour, we were very cold and numb, and began to think all was over. But neither of us feared death. All I wanted was to save enough money to be cremated, and I was confident my friends would see to that. I don't think fear of death is a common trait among grafters. Perhaps it is lack of imagination. More likely, however, it's because they think they won't be any the worse off after death. Still, I was not sorry when a wrecking boat suddenly popped our way. The tug did not see us and hit Jack's end of the pole a hard blow that must have shaken him off. I heard him holler, save me, and I yelled too. I didn't think anything about capture just then. All my desire to live came back to me. I was pulled into the boat. The captain was a good fellow. He was next and only smiled at my lies. What was more to the purpose, he gave me some good whiskey and set me ashore in Jersey City. Jack was drowned. All through life I had been used to losing a friend suddenly by the wayside, but I've always felt sad when it happened. And yet it would have been far better for me if I had been picked out for an early death. I guess poor Jack was lucky. Certainly there are worse things than death. Through these years of continual and for the most part successful graft, I had known a man named Henry Fry whose story is one of the saddest. If he had been called off suddenly as Jack was, he would certainly have been deemed lucky by those who knew, for he was married to a bad woman. He was one of the most successful boxmen, safe-blowers, in the city, and made thousands, but nothing was enough for his wife. She used to say when he would put $1,200 in her lap, this won't meet expenses, I need $1,000 more. She was unfaithful to him, too, and with his friends. When I go to a matinee and see a lot of sleek, fat, inane-looking women, I wonder who the poor devils are who are having their lifeblood sucked out of them. Certainly it was so with Henry, or Henny as we used to call him. One day, I remember, we went down the Sound with a well-known politician's chowder party, and Henny was with us. Two weeks earlier, New York had been startled by a daring burglary. A large silk importer's place of business was entered, and his safe, supposed to be burglar-proof, was opened. He was about to be married, and his valuable wedding presents, which were in the safe, and $6,000 worth of silk were stolen. It was Henny and his pals who had made the touch, but on this beautiful night on the Sound, Henny was sad. We were sitting on deck, as it was a hot summer night, when Henny jumped off his camp stool and asked me to sing a song. I sang a sentimental ditty in my tenor voice, and then Henny took me off to the side of the boat, away from the others. Kid, he said, 
I feel trouble coming over me. Cheer up, I replied. You're a little downhearted, that's all. I wish to God, he said, I was like you. I pulled out a $5 bill and a $2 bill and remarked, I've got just $7 to my name. He turned to me and said, But you are happy. You don't let anything bother you. Henny did not drink as a rule. That was one reason he was such a good box man. But on this occasion we had a couple of drinks and I sang I love but one. Then Henny ordered champagne, grew confidential, and told me his troubles. Kid, he said, I've got $3,500 on me. I've been giving my wife a good deal of money but don't know what she does with it. In 60 days I have given her $3,000 and she complains about poverty all the time. Then he had a nice flat of seven or eight rooms. He owed nothing and had no children. He said he was unable to find any bank books in his wife's trunk and was confident she was not laying the money by. She did not give it to her people, but even borrowed money from her father, a well-to-do builder. Two days after the night of the excursion, one of Henny's pals in the silk robbery went into a gin mill, treated everybody, and threw a $1,000 bill down on the bar. Grafters, probably more than others, like this kind of display. It's the only way to rise in their society. A central office detective saw this little exhibition, got into the grafter's confidence, and weeded him out a bit. A night or two afterwards, Henny was in bed at home when the servant girl, who was in love with Henny and detested his wife because she treated her husband so badly, she used to say to me, She ain't worthy to tie his shoestring came to the door and told Henny and his wife that a couple of men and a policeman in uniform were inquiring for him. Henny replied sleepily that they were friends of his who had come to buy some stones, but the girl was alarmed. She knew that Henny was crooked and feared that those below meant him no good. She took the canvas turnabout containing burglar's tools which hung on a wall near the bed and pinned it around her waist under her skirt, and then admitted the three visitors. The sergeant said to Henny, who had dressed himself, you are under suspicion for the silk robbery. Yet there was, as is not uncommon, a but, which is as a rule a monetary consideration. Henny knew that the crime was old, and as he thought his fence was safe, he did not see how there could be a comeback. So he did not take the hint to shell out and work the innocent con. But those whose business it is to watch the world of prey put two and two together and were next that Henny and his mob had pulled off the trick. So they searched the house expecting to find, if not a clot, at least burglar's tools, for they knew that Henny was at the top of the ladder and that he must have something to work with. While the sergeant was going through Henny's trunk, one of the flymen fooled with the pretty servant girl. She jumped and a pair of turners fell on the floor. It did not take the flyman long to find the whole kit of tools. Henny was arrested, convicted, and sent to Sing Sings for five years. While in prison he became insane, his delusion being that he was a funny man on the Detroit Free Press, which he thought was owned by his wife. I never discovered what Henny's wife did with the money she got from him. When I last heard of her she was married to another successful grafter, whom she was making unhappy also. In a grafter's life a woman often takes the part of the avenger of society. She turns against the grafters their own weapons, and uses them with more skill, for no man can graft like a woman. I had now been grafting for three years, in the full tide of success. Since the age of eighteen I had had no serious fall. I had made much money and lived high. 
I had risen in the world of graft, and I had become not only a skillful pickpocket, but a good swindler and drag worker, and had done some good things as a burglar. I was approaching my twenty-first year when, as you will see, I was to go to the penitentiary for the first time. This is a good place, perhaps, to describe my general manner of life, my daily menu, so to speak, during these three fat years, for after my first term in state's prison, things went from bad to worse. I lived in a furnished room, or at a hotel. If there was nothing doing in the line of graft, I'd lie abed late, and read the newspapers to see if any large gathering where we might make some touches was on hand. One of my girls, of whom there was a long succession, was usually with me. We would breakfast, if the day was an idle one, about one or two o'clock in the afternoon. Then we'd send to the restaurant and have a beefsteak or chops in our rooms, and perhaps a whiskey sour. If it was another grafter's girl I'd won, I'd be greatly pleased, for that kind of thing is a game with us. In the afternoon I'd take in some variety show, or buy the Tommy a present. If it was summer we might go to a picnic, or to the island. If I was alone, I would meet a pal, play billiards at pool, bet on the races, baseball and prize fights, jump out to the polo grounds, or go to Patsy's house and have a game of poker. Patsy's wife was a handsome grafter, and Patsy was jealous. Every gun is sensitive about his wife, for he doesn't know how long he will have her with him. In the evening, I would go to a dance hall or to Coney Island if the weather was good. If it was a busy day, that is, if there was a touch to be pulled off, we would get up in the morning or in the afternoon, according to the best time for the particular job in hand. In the afternoon, we would often graft at the polo grounds, where we had a copper right. We did not have the same privileges at the racetrack, because it was protected by the Pinkerton men. We'd console ourselves at the polo grounds, which we used to tear wide open, and where I never got even a hint of a fall. The coppers got their percentage of the touches. In the morning we would meet at one of the grafters' homes or rooms and talk over our scheme for the day or night. If we were going outside the city we would have to rise very early. Sometimes we were sorry we had lost our sleep, particularly the time we tried to tear open the town of Sing Sing, near which the famous prison is. We found nothing to steal there but pig iron, and there were only two pretty girls in the whole village. We used to jump out to neighboring towns, not always to grafts, but sometimes to see our girls, for like sailors, the well-dressed, dapper pickpocket has a girl in every port. If we made a good touch in the afternoon, we'd go on a spree in the evening with Sheeny Annie, Blonde Mamie, Big Lena, or some other good-natured lasses, or we'd go over and inspect the Jersey maidens. After a good touch, we would put some of the dough away for fall money, or for our sick relatives, or guns in stir, or in the hospital. We'd all chip in to help out a woman grafter in trouble, and pool a piece of jewelry sometimes for the purpose. Then, our duty done, we would put on our best front and visit our friends in sporting places. Among others, we used to jump over to a hotel kept by an ex-gun, one of the best of the spud men, green goods men, who is now on the level and a bit of a politician. He owns six fast horses, is married, and has two beautiful children. A few months before I was sent to the penitentiary for the first time, I had my only true love affair. I have liked many girls, but the sentiment of the kind I felt for Ethel has played little part in my life. For Ethel, I felt the real thing, and she for me. She was a good, sensible girl, and came from a respectable family. She lived with her father, who was a drummer, and took care of the house for him. She was a good deal of a musician, and like most other girls, she was fond of dancing. I first met her at Beethoven Hall, and was introduced to her by a man, an honest laborer, who was in love with her. 
I liked her at first sight, but did not love her until I had talked with her. In two weeks we were lovers and went everywhere together. The working man who loved her too was jealous and began to knock me. He told her I was a grafter, but she would not believe him and said nothing to me about it, but it came to my ears through an intimate girl pal of hers. Shortly after that I fell for a breech kick. It was arrested for picking a man's trousers pocket. But I had a good lawyer, and the copper was one of those who are open to reason. I lay a month in the tombs, however, before I got off, and Ethel learned all about it. She came to the tombs to see me, but instead of reproaches, I got sympathy from her. After I was released, I gave her some of my confidence. She asked me if I wouldn't be honest and go to work, and said she would ask her father to get me a job. Her father came to me and painted what my life would be if I kept on. I thought the matter over sincerely. I had formed expensive habits which I could not keep up on any salary I could honestly make. Away down in my mind, I suppose you would call it soul, I knew I was not ready for reform. I talked with Ethel and told her that I loved her, but that I could not quit my life. She said she would marry me anyway, but I thought the world of her and told her that though I had blasted my own life, I would not blast hers. I would not marry her. She was so good and affectionate. When we parted, I said to myself, man proposes, habit disposes. It was certainly lucky that I did not marry that sweet girl, for a month after I had split with her, I fell for a long term in state's prison. It was for a breech kick, which I could not square. I had gone out of my hotel one morning for a bottle of whiskey when I met two grafters, Johnny and Alec, who were towing a sucker along with them. They gave me the tip that it was worth trying. Indeed, I gathered that the man must have his bank with him, and I nicked him in a car for his breech leather. A spectator saw the deed and tipped off a copper. I was nailed but had nothing on me, for I had passed the leather to Alec. I was not in the mood for the police station, and with Alec's help I licked the copper, who pulled his gun and fired at us as we ran up a side street. Alec blazed back and escaped, but I was arrested. I could not square it, as I have said, for I have been wanted at headquarters for some time past because I did not like to give up and was no stool pigeon. I notified Mr. R., who was told to keep his hands off. I had been tearing the cars open for so long that the company wanted to do me. They got brassy mouthed and yelled murder. I saw I had a corporation against me and hadn't a living chance to beat it. So I pleaded guilty and received five years and seven months at Sing Sing. A boy of 21, I was handcuffed with two old jailbirds, and as we rode up on a 4th Avenue car to the Grand Central Station, I felt deeply humiliated for the first time in my life. When the passengers stared at me, I hung my head with shame. End of chapter 6